You're listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message at 11 a.m. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. To learn more, visit mtcarmeldemarest.com or facebook.com forward slash mtcarmeldemarest. Thanks for listening. John chapter 19, verses 7 through 16. And I want to continue our series through the book of John, as we walk with Jesus to the cross and to Resurrection Sunday. I've entitled this series, Our Lord's Triumph, and this is part four, entitled Verdict. Verdict. The late R.C. Sproul comments, depending on which generation you belong to, You remember where you were when you heard of the assassination of President Kennedy or of the terrorist attacks on September 11, 2001. I would like to add that this pandemic that has swept the globe may define a generation. Sproul continues, but memories of President Kennedy have faded over the decades. And the number of flags that adorn our homes and cars have diminished since that first week of 9-11. And it's hard to imagine right now, but if the Lord waits and doesn't return and end the age, months, years, decades from now, This whole experience that we're going through may be a memory that's hard for us to conjure up. It's kind of odd to think about, isn't it? Right now it's a wash in our minds. We can't escape it no matter what we do if we turn on the news. The very fact that we're doing this is a reminder of it. And yet, there may be a day when we don't remember it so vividly. And that's hard to think of in this moment. And what I want to draw your attention to is this. 2,000 years ago, we still remember to this day the trial of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We remember it. We haven't gotten over it. In fact, I would contend that the true church preaches Christ crucified every week. We weren't even there for Jesus' trial under the governor Pontius Pilate. And yet here we are this week in our respective homes to remember A trial, a crucifixion, and ultimately a resurrection that we can't get over. We can't forget about it. I like what Pastor A.W. Tozer writes in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And he continues, We tend by a secret law 
of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that compose the church. Always, the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. Today, we will see how your verdict of Jesus shapes your life, our community, our history, and all eternity. The most important question you will ever answer is this. Do you really believe Jesus is God? Do you really believe Jesus is God? Over the past couple of weeks, we have seen Pontius Pilate interrogate Jesus. Was Jesus the king of the Jews like his enemies proclaimed? Pilate has come to the conclusion that Jesus is just some kind of street philosopher who poses no threat to the Roman Empire. But to appease Jesus' enemies, Pilate had Jesus whipped and beat. Jesus is mocked with a crown of thorns and a royal purple robe, which was probably a rug, was thrown around him. He is presented to the public, Jesus is, in complete and utter humiliation. The pathetic sight should pacify the mob. That's Pilate's plan. But the mob instead cries, crucify, crucify. Pilate retorts that he founds no grounds to charge and crucify Jesus. And we're left with this nagging question, is that Pilate's final verdict? Would he release Jesus even in the face of the crowds? Let's look at the next verse where we pick up from last week in John chapter 19. Look at verse 7, and this is the mob, Jesus' enemies replying to Pontius Pilate after he said he found no grounds for charging and crucifying Jesus. He says this, the crowds do, we have a law, the Jews replied to him, and according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. Here's the first thing that I want you to notice, and this is a drama that unfolds in three consecutive scenes. The first scene that we see here is the reaction to the verdict. We're looking at the crowd's reaction to the initial verdict that Pontius Pilate says Jesus is innocent of these charges of treason. That's the issue. Pilate doesn't believe he's the king of the Jews, and the Jews here, in John chapter 19, verse 7, that charge of treason we see is just a sham. They had not brought Jesus to Pilate because he was causing some kind of rebellion against Rome. They fabricated that to obtain a Roman sentence of death. And here we see in verse 7, in complete frustration, they finally blurt out their real concern. He made himself to be the Son of God. Now, on first passing, if you've read 
your Bible, you've been a, stu a student of the Bible, there have been people in the Old Testament who claim to be the sons of God and not in a blasphemous way. For instance, the Old Testament kings of Israel were considered to be, quote, sons of God. You can read this in the kingly psalm, Psalm 2. And this is God speaking to the king of Israel. And he says this, I will declare, this is Psalm 2, verse 7, I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, this is the king, you are my son, today I have become your father. In essence, it's, it's this idea, if I had to put it into our terminology, God, so to speak, adopts the king of Israel as his agent for the nation of Israel and therefore calls him his son, the person that's going to administrate his work on his behalf. But that's not the only person that's called the Son of God. In fact, the entire nation of Israel as a whole, a collective group, is called the children of God or the sons and daughters of God. Reread this in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22. And you will say to Pharaoh, this is the God of Israel telling Moses to speak to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord, God of Israel, says, Israel is my firstborn son. So the kings of Israel are called sons. The nation of Israel as collective group is called the sons of God or a son of God. What we have to see is we have to see how Jesus is using the term about himself. And it's amazing. Jesus was claiming more than the ways this phrase had been used in the Old Testament. Have no doubt about it. You can write this down. Jesus claimed to be equal with God. Notice in some form in these Old Testament passages, there's a little bit of a distance. The king works as an agent on God's behalf, but the king would never say, I am equal with God. The nation of Israel works as a mediator between God and the rest of the world, but the nation itself would never say, I am equal with God. I want you to hear some of Jesus' statements in the book of John. And you'll realize real quick why his enemies considered it blasphemous and not just the usages of the Old Testament. Listen to what it says in John chapter 5 verse 18. This is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill him, Jesus. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath according to their terms, but he was even, even calling God his own father. And then notice this next line making himself equal to God. Jesus is saying he has a special relationship to God to the point that he is on the same footing or level with God. And the Jews picked up on what he was saying when he claimed to be the Son of God. This wasn't just like the kings of Israel or the nation of Israel as a whole. And I can prove it even further. Listen to John chapter 10, verses 31 through 33. Again, the Jews picked up rocks to stone him, Jesus. Jesus replied, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these works are you stoning me? So I've done many good things. You're about to execute me for what good thing? And then listen to their reply. If you ever wondered, did Jesus actually claim to be the Son of God? 
Listen to how people interpreted his sons of God statement. Listen to this. He says, we aren't stoning you for good work, the Jews answered, but for blasphemy because you, being a man, make yourself God. With gentleness and respect, this is a lot of the same problems we have in the church world today. Those who are lost and critical and may even hate God and those who represent Him, they are fine as long as we continue to do charitable deeds, but don't bring up the name of Jesus and His claim to be God. That's the issue. And what the church is going to continue to proclaim is that is the claim of Jesus. Jesus isn't just claiming to be a king, though He is. He isn't just claiming to be God's agent and mediator, though he is. He puts himself on equal footing with God. Think about that for a minute. Think about what I just said to you. A man saying he is God in the flesh. That should, on some point, either make you think this man's crazy. He is a lunatic. He is out of his mind. Or he is a liar. And you shouldn't trust anything that comes out of his mouth. We should treat it like his enemies did. This is blasphemy if it's not true. You cannot say these kinds of things. And so the question I have to ask you, I have to ask you about your verdict. What it is that you believe about Jesus. Do you believe Jesus is God. He does not leave any doubt into the audience's mind. That is the statement he is making, claiming to be equal with God. Do you believe him or do you believe he is committing blasphemy? Let's move to scene two, John chapter 19, verses 8 through 11. When Pilate heard this statement that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. He was more afraid than ever. He went back into the headquarters. Remember, Jesus is in the back. The crowds are out front. They don't want to defile themselves because of Passover being so close to a Gentile's headquarters. So he goes back into the headquarters and asks Jesus, Where are you from? He wants to know his origin. But Jesus did not give him an answer. So Pilate said to him, Do you refuse to speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? And listen to Jesus' response. I find it interesting that he was quiet and silent about the first question. But he will answer the second. You have no authority over me at all. Jesus answered him. If it hadn't been given you from above... This is why the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. Scene two, the review of the verdict. The review of the verdict. Pilate wants to take one more chance at interrogating Jesus. Why? The words, Son of God, disturbed Pilate. The Romans had stories of deities visiting the earth in human form, and then judging those who rejected them. 
Some Romans were cynical about the gods, but most believe in them. They were superstitious. The thought of a God-man in Pilate's presence, even if Pilate wasn't a very religious person, calls Pilate to say, I've got to go make sure. I've got to make sure about my verdict. It is worth another look. And so he goes and he asks Jesus, where are you from? This is a question of his origin. Are you from above? Are you from the heavenlies? Are you a divine person? And this is an issue that John likes to have surfaced throughout the gospel. Where is Jesus ultimately from? Can I just show you a couple things? In John chapter 2 verse 9, remember the wedding of Cana? And Jesus was asked to turn the water into wine. Remember this, when the head waiter tasted the water after it had become wine, he did not know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, he called the groom. Again, John is just saying, where's this from? This man who can turn water into wine, where is he from? In John chapter 4, verse 11, this is the woman at the well. Remember, Jesus says, I can give you living water. And listen to what she said. Sir, said the woman, you don't even have a bucket, and the well is deep. So where do you get this living water? Where's the source? What's the origin? And again, he's trying to lift our eyes. John wants us to lift our eyes off of the earth into the heavenlies. I'm not talking about wine from this world. I'm not talking about water from this world. I'm talking about heavenly things. And then in John chapter 9, verse 30, it's one of my favorite stories in the book of John, when Jesus heals a blind man, and, and this blind man is giving a defense of Jesus, who he doesn't really know, in front of the Sanhedrin, who did not like Jesus, this court. And listen to what it says in John 9, verse 30. This is an amazing thing, the blind man says. This is an amazing thing. I don't know what to tell you. He was blind, but now he can see. And he says, the man told them, you don't know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. What a beautiful bear. I don't know where he's from, but I can tell you this, he opened my eyes. Again, John's trying to lift our sights to heaven. That's where Jesus is from. Jesus claimed, you can write it down, we just saw it earlier, Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed to be equal with God, but he also claimed to be from above. He claimed to be from above. And so Pilate picks up that question, where are you from? And Jesus remains silent. I believe Jesus remains silent for two reasons. Number one, this fulfills the words of an Old Testament prophet named Isaiah. And he wrote these words over 700 years before the birth of Christ. This is in Isaiah 53, verse 7. He, this suffering servant who would be the Messiah, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a, a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. Jesus stays silent in front of those who would kill him. But the other reason, I believe, is that the author of this gospel, John, he's using this story to function in a way that 
forces you and I to answer the question. Where do you believe he's from? I'm asking you, wherever you're watching, in your home, wherever you're picking this up, I'm asking you, do you believe Jesus is God? Do you believe Jesus came down from above? Do you believe Jesus is actually God in human flesh? John is looking at you. He says, what's your verdict? What's your answer? Jesus' silence irritated Pilate. Someone says, if he's waiting. <laughs> Pilate retorted about his status, that he was a representative of the Roman Empire. He was going to throw that in Jesus' face. Notice how here Jesus is no longer acting like the defendant, but the judge. And Pilate's been put on trial. Jesus did speak up to correct Pilate's understanding of what authority really is. Jesus uses this term from above, of course, to refer to God. It is God who raises up kings and emperors and deposes them as he sees fit. He is the sovereign ruler of the universe. And what Jesus was letting Pilate know is that God had sovereignly planned to place me here. He is working out a much bigger plan than just politics. That's not the story. There's a grand story, an overarching story that Jesus is after, and he's going to complete it. And he does tell Pilate, Pilate, yes, the, the greater responsibility would fall upon Caiaphas and those who brought me to your headquarters because they have premeditated murder, but nevertheless, you are responsible. You have a role in this that you cannot dodge. Jesus claimed to be from above. We saw last week that he claimed to be the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I want to remind you during this time as we fight this pandemic both locally and globally that Jesus, he has not left his throne. Please church, don't forget it. He still has the whole world in his hands. Don't lose that simple truth. I like what the late R.C. Sproul commented. He says, God works in and through even the evil actions of sinful men to accomplish his purposes. And then he says this, remember, these events that we've been reading about happen on the day we celebrate as Good Friday. Think about that. All of this the interrogation, the examination, the, the coronation of humiliation and the mocking, the beating, the whipping. And then like we'll see later, his execution on the cross, we call that Good Friday. How is that even possible to call it Good Friday? Because God's not finished yet. And there's hope even in the midst of our pandemic and the situation that we're in. This control, this issue is still in God's control. And somehow, someday, I'm not saying right now, could we possibly ever look back and go, He still, even in the midst of our sin and its consequences that has broken this world, He was working all things 
together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Church, this is where you and I have to trust. Jesus is from above. He is the king of kings and he is still in control and it is still good. And he is still good. Meditate on what one commentator wrote for just a moment. The Jewish people offer Pilate this choice. Which will you have? Christ or Caesar? Christ or Caesar? Pilate has little interest in the death of Jesus, but now at this moment he is confronted with a choice. Does his real power come from Caesar or God? That's the question for Pilate that Jesus is ultimately posing to him. Am I here? If I'm, if I'm here from above, then you're not in control. And I'm here for a reason. Pilate would have to believe that, and I believe it's an invitation for you and I to search that question and believe it ourselves. Is Jesus at the whims of the political storm of his day, or in fact, Was he in control of it all, working things out for our good? The third scene, John chapter 19, verses 12 through 6. Listen to what it says. From that moment, Pilate kept trying to release him. He was so afraid. But the Jews shouted, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Anyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. This was a good argument. All right? They are being politically savvy. Look at what it says in verse 13. When Pilate heard these words, he knew. When that argument surfaced, it was over. When Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus outside. He sat down, this is Pilate, on the judge's seat in a place called the Stone Pavement, but in Aramaic, it's Gabbatha. It was the preparation day for the Passover. John just wants us to know that. And it was about noon. Then he, Pilate, told the Jews, he eggs them on one more time. Remember, Jesus is this pathetic sight, crown of thorns, whipped, beaten, mocked, purple rug around him. And he needles the crowd. Here is your king, He's almost like, do you really think he's a threat? And notice what they say. They shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Pilate said to them, should I crucify your king? Should I crucify him? And now he knows this is almost a power play politically. I have it in my hand to do it. And notice their response. We have no king but Caesar. The chief priest answered. This is the highest religious leadership in the nation at that time. They say, we have no king but Caesar. And then Pilate handed Jesus over to be crucified. And they took Jesus away. The very last scene we see is the rerouting of the verdict. The rerouting of the verdict. 
because of this encounter with Jesus, Pilate was determined to release Jesus. That's his game plan as he marches back out to the mob. But his determination is short-lived because the mob was ready with an, a good argument. Emperor Tiberius, Caesar at the time, was sick. He was suspicious. He was paranoid and violent. Pilate did not want an unfavorable report to go, from him, to, go to him for word to get back to Tiberius. Remember, Jesus claimed to be king. You can write it down. Jesus claimed to be a king. But remember, he was a different kind of king. A king not of this world. But nevertheless, he did admit to being some kind of king. All it would take now to get Pilate into trouble is for a delegation to be sent to Rome, to sent to Tiberius, and provide the slightest evidence that Pilate had supported a self-proclaimed king. You heard him say he was a king. No matter what kind it is, he is a challenger to Caesar. And Pilate knew the consequences. It would be a beheading. How could Pilate explain to any superior, uh, Jesus is a king, but he's not a king like you and I think of a king. He's, he's not going to challenge the Roman Empire or be a threat to Caesar. That doesn't make sense in their world. There's, there's no such thing. Pilate's superior would judge them incompetent, if not treasonous. Pilate's grounds for dismissing Jesus, they dissolve. And then there's the powder keg. What are you going to do with them? And it only needs just a little spark for it to become explosive. If Pilate had to choose between showing his loyalty to Rome or siding with a despised, strange Jew, there was no question in his mind. Pilate rendered his verdict at noon, or the sixth hour, as some translations say. There is more to this sixth hour than just chronology. That's not what John's necessarily worried about. The designation of the sixth hour, or around noon, is crucial for John because this was when the major task of slaughtering the lambs to prepare for the Passover meal began to take place. Now, if you don't know what the Passover is, the Passover meal commemorates the climactic 10th plague in the book of Exodus. You may remember Moses and the 10 plagues on Egypt. God punishes Egypt for not letting his people, the Israelites, go from slavery to go and serve their God. And so God judges all the firstborn of the land, Egyptians and Israelites. But he instructs Moses to tell the Israelites that if they'll slaughter a lamb and apply that lamb's blood to the doorpost of their individual home, God's judgment would pass over that house and move throughout the land and the firstborn would be saved. And after this happened and all the firstborns of the land of Egypt were sentenced under judgment and died, Pharaoh finally let the people of Israel go and thus the nation of Israel was born. It is essentially their Independence Day where they celebrate God's gracious provision of freedom through what? The slaughtering of a lamb. 
and the blood applied to their door so that judgment passed over them. And this sixth hour that John is pointing to on this Friday was an appropriate designation for the sentencing of Jesus. Why? Remember this. You have to go all the way back to the beginning of John chapter 1. Jesus claimed to be the Lamb of God. Jesus claimed to be the Lamb of God. Look at what it says in John chapter 1 verse 29. The next day, John, this is John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What John is saying here is that there is a new exodus. There is a new kind of deliverance that God is providing to everyone, the entire world. And it's about to begin at this moment when when Pilate sentenced Jesus to death. The sacrificial lamb for the sins of the world was going to be slain and therefore release us from sin and its penalty death and free us to go and live and worship the living God. And that's what John is pointing to. Verse 15 is overflowing the brim with tragic irony. God was the king of Israel, but we see this back in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel 8, 5 through 7. The people demanded a king so they could be like the surrounding nations. And finally, God conceded to the people that day. And God let them experience the consequence of rejecting God as their king, and then they had a man as their king. The mob here, the crowd, actually committed the ultimate hypocrisy when they respond to Pilate with the blasphemous words, We have no king but Caesar. That is not true. The God of Israel was the king of Israel. They are rejecting God. They are verbally removing God from their nation. He is not playing any role in the kingship of Israel and now the people and their leaders are claiming loyalty to Rome if they'll just get rid of Jesus. Pilate consents to the mob's demands Pilate would not risk negative reports about himself over just some minor case. As a governor, he had full discretion to decree the penalty. When a governor decreed that one would be executed, it's often said something like this, you will mount the cross. You will mount the cross. Pilate passes sentence. Death by crucifixion. And Jesus will mount the cross. Jesus was then led to be scourged and then crucified. So what? What does this drama, this seeming tragedy have to do with you and me today in the world that we find ourselves in? It's the same thing that John has been trying to do in this whole story He is saying this to you, and you can write it down. Render your verdict. Render your verdict. But before you do, I want you to hear me out. Before you make your decision about who you believe Jesus to be, I want to remind you of something the late atheist who turned great Christian apologist, C.S. Lewis, wrote this in The Weight of Glory. 
He said this, I read in a periodical the other day that the fundamental thing is how we think about God. By God himself it is not. How God thinks of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. Indeed, how we think of him is of no importance except insofar as it is related to how he thinks of us. It is written that we shall stand before him, shall appear, shall be inspected. I need you to get the significance of what Lewis is saying. Your verdict of Jesus, what you believe about Jesus, will shape your life. It will shape our community. It will shape the history of the world. And it will shape our eternity. But here's the reason why. Because God has ordained to relate to you based on your verdict of Jesus. God is going to deal with you and interact with you based on what you do with Jesus. In reality, the most important question you can ever answer is this. What does God think about whether I believe that Jesus is God? What does God say about my belief in Jesus? Is Jesus committing blasphemy? Or is He really the Son of God and equal with God? And if I reject Him, what happens? And even better, if I accept him by faith, what happens? Listen to what the Apostle Peter says about Jesus. This is in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 22 through 23. He did not commit sin. Jesus didn't. And no deceit was found in his mouth when he was insulted. He did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Did you notice what he said? He didn't respond to Pilate. He entrusted his innocence and his claims about who he was to God. He says, God will justify me. And how does God do that? The Apostle Peter explains in his sermon on Pente- at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verses 31 through 32. Seeing what was to come, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. He was not abandoned in Hades and his flesh did not experience decay. God has raised this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this. Did you notice? Do you see his vindication? Do you see how God justified Jesus and his innocence and the claims that he made to be the Son of God, to be from above? God raised him from the dead and said this is the very truth of God. Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul put it this way, and Jesus was appointed to be the powerful Son of God according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. Inauguration day, so to speak. You want to find out if He really is the Son of God and the kings of kings, which He is? He says He's been raised from the dead. This proves that He wasn't some just street philosopher or or common criminal or treasonous or that he had committed blasphemy. Instead, he is the Son of God. For what reason? Why would the Son of God leave the throne of God to come down here to people who hate him? Why would he do that? It says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 24 through 25, 
He Himself, here's the reason, bore our sins in His body on the tree so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now, because of what Jesus did, you you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Here was the grand story that God was working out in the midst of this political nightmare was that God was going to impute or charge Jesus with all the sins of the world. He was going to lay on Jesus as the sacrificial lamb who would guarantee our release from sin and death, its penalty. He was going to put them all on Jesus and there the wrath of God would be poured out on Jesus on our behalf on the cross and for our benefit. And because He did that, the Son of God did that, it is salvific. That has the power to save. It is the meritorious work of salvation. Jesus has earned and bought our salvation. And what's the proof? If Jesus is, if his bones is somewhere on the earth, he's just a man. He's just a sinner like you and I. But because God raised him from the dead, Jesus is vindicated and you and I have the offer of salvation. The resurrection is God overruling Pilate's verdict. The resurrection is God's uh, declaration that Jesus is the very truth of God. The resurrection is the evidence that Jesus is the Son of God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Lamb of God, and the Savior of the world. And to get even more personal, the resurrection is the receipt of the payment for our sin. It has been paid in full. The question, again, comes back to this. It's one simple question. But remember, the most important question because God is deciding how to relate to you. God's going to relate to you based on this question. Do you believe Jesus is God? Render your verdict. If you think I'm making it up, John tells us the thesis of his whole book. Why did he write these things? Listen to this. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name, everlasting life, eternal life with God forever in heaven. Do you believe Jesus is from above? That he's not just a man. He is a man, but he is the God-man. Is Jesus your king? Is he your Lord? It's maybe better to say this. Does he rule over your life? Can he overrule you with his life and teaching? He's ruling now. Even in the midst of the chaos, he's still in control. Listen to the kind of authority Jesus has. And this is the greatest authority. No person on earth has this authority. Listen to what John 1.12 says. But to all who did receive Him, He gave them the right to be the children of God to those who believe in His name. If you'll believe in Him and trust that He died for your sins and He rose again and you call out to Him for salvation, He has the right and the power as the King of kings and Lord of lords to make you a child of God. 
you're a part of the family. That's the greatest power anybody can have, to say you belong to God. Come here. Do you believe that Jesus is your Savior? You may want to recite this with me if you know it. For God so loved the world in this way that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Will you believe he's the Son of God? Will you believe that he came from above? Will you believe that he can save you from your sins and give you a relationship with God that begins now and lasts throughout eternity? Render your verdict. I'm going to ask for just a moment, wherever you're at, if you would bow your head and close your eyes. And I want to give you an opportunity right now to confess to Jesus, because he's not dead. He is alive. His presence is everywhere. He can hear our thoughts and whispers. And I'm asking you to do this. If you're ready to turn from your sin and trust Jesus as your God, your King, your Lord, your Savior, the ruler of your life, if you'll give your life to Christ, will you pray this prayer? This prayer is nothing magical. It doesn't matter. If you don't mean it, if there's no genuine uh, desire to turn your life over to Christ, then it's just as good as saying your favorite movie line to God. But if you go, today I want to turn and give my life to Christ and receive Him, then would you just say this? Say, Dear Jesus, I confess that I am a sinner and I deserve death and judgment. But I believe you love me you came to this earth. You lived a perfect life. And you died on the cross for my sins. And I believe God raised you from the dead. Be my Savior and my God. Forgive me of my sin. Come into my life. I give my life to you. If you prayed that prayer... I want to encourage you to do one of two things. If you can find our website, it's mtcarmeldemrus.com. Again, that's mtcarmeldemrus.com. Over the home tab, if you hover over it, you're going to see two tabs. One is Jesus' story. If you want to hear more about God's story of reconciling the world to himself through Jesus, his son, you can watch a video about that. And fill out the form when you're finished. And it will reach me and I'll call out to you. I'll contact you. If you prayed that prayer today and you want to take the next right step in your walk with the Lord, hit that second tab, which is baptism. Baptism is the way we show the world that we believe and identify with what Jesus has done for our salvation. That when we go under the water, we're identifying and believing that Jesus died for our sins, and when we come up out of the water, we are saying that we believe and identify with Jesus' resurrection, that we can live a new life in Christ, and that we're forgiven of our sins, and we have a relationship with God that begins now and forever. And that's the way in which we make that private prayer and confession and commitment public to the church and the world. And we would be delighted to baptize you. We will find a way.
Here's why the way I want to end this digital service today. I want you to take the next couple of minutes and kind of have your own time of response and prayer right there in your home. I'm going to put a, a clock up, a countdown, and I just want you to take the time. If you're by yourself, just pray for yourself. Pray for your family, your loved ones. Pray for our community and our church. Pray for our nation. Pray for the world as we fight this pandemic. But more importantly, pray that people would repent of their sins and trust Christ as their Savior. Pray for the people who would watch this. People who may never darken the door of the church, but may turn this on and hear the gospel. Thanks for listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. Please join us this Sunday at 11 a.m. To plan your visit, go to mtcarmeldemarest.com.